I'm a little afraid. A little afraid I'm going to ruin uh, everybody's Christmas today. So that's what I'm a little afraid about. Uh, and it's not going to ruin your Christmas if you were here at the story last Christmas. Because if you paid attention last Christmas, we talked about some of the things we're going to talk about today. But the story is like uh, a lot, you know, bigger of a community that was last Christmas. Because, we're, you know, we just keep growing and starting these new services and things. And, and new people. And so uh, that's awesome. But I'm afraid for those of you who are for the first Christmas, uh, this is going to be tough. It's going to be tough for you. I'm afraid you're going to go home and destroy your nativity scenes. And like, you're going to just not have Christmas anymore because of what I'm going to tell you today. Or you're going to say, you know, I hate that church and never come back here. One of those two things is going to happen. Um, because there at Christmas, there is the stuff we think we know happened at Christmas. And then there's the stuff the Bible said happened at Christmas. And there's very little those two things have in common. <laughs> so a lot of the stuff we think we know because we've got Charlie Brown Christmas memorized, you know, by heart. Or because uh, mama and daddy told me this or I learned this in church growing up or whatever. A lot of that stuff that we think's in the Bible has been culturally layered on over centuries of time. People have tried to fill in the, the perceived gaps in the story with whatever sounded nice to them or sentimental or whatever made sense to them. And we have now accepted a lot of the layering as though the layers were in the Bible in the first place. And nothing wrong with that. I, I hope that you don't destroy your nativity. It's cool to keep, you know, knowing that story, telling that story. Watch Charlie Brown Christmas. You must, as an American Christian, you must watch Charlie Brown Christmas once a year. But uh, it's also helpful to know what really happened and why. So let me walk us through kind of the basics of what we think happened, what we think we know about Christmas. We think we know that Mary and Joseph traveled together from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census, right? You know about the census. Linus told you about the census. And you, uh, you knew that Mary traveled with Joseph to be counted in Bethlehem as part of the census. And you know that on the way into Bethlehem, Mary, while riding a donkey, her water broke. While riding the donkey into the city of Jerusalem, and Mary goes into labor. The moment they arrive, there is suddenly a birth emergency, but Joseph can't find a hotel room because Joseph didn't make a reservation, even though Mary reminded him to make a reservation. Three times I reminded you, she says, and Joseph's like, I thought we could find a cheaper rate if we just showed up in the middle of the night, and you're pregnant. Somebody would have sympathy and give us a cheaper rate. How's that working out for you, Joseph? Why do we even get married, Mary? You know, like this whole thing is just unfolding. Uh, in our minds, I think this disagreement they had about this hotel reservation, they couldn't find a room at the inn, we think. And we think there was an innkeeper, a nasty old curmudgeon of an innkeeper who said, there's no vacancy here. There's no room in my inn. And then he pointed to a stable out back and said, that's where you can have your baby out in the barn out back. And so Mary and Joseph went out back and had Jesus in a barn among the animals. Um, not, not to be too like Morpheus and Neo here, but what if I told you that none of that stuff is actually in the Bible? And it never was. The stuff that we have layered on culturally is not actually in the Bible story. I want to explain that in, in, a, in a little bit, but, but I just want you to know there's no inn in the Bible story. There probably wasn't an inn 
in Bethlehem. There was like 250 people that lived there. They probably couldn't support an inn. You know what I'm saying? There was no innkeeper in the Bible story. There's no barn in the Bible story to speak of, not in the way we normally think of anyway. What I want to say today is that the real Christmas story in the Bible is much more interesting. It's much less concerned with semantics and logistics and what happened when. And it's not sentimental at all, but it's much more interesting. It is the story, the true story of a battle ensuing between light and darkness. God declaring war against his enemy, Satan. The true story of the struggle between good and evil. It is a battle. We know it is a battle that continues today. We know this because it's a battle taking place within all of us. We sense it no matter where you are religiously, on the religious spectrum, you know there is a struggle between good and evil. There's some forces at work in you. That's where the idea of the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other whispering into your ears, right? That's where that comes from. That's why it resonates with us because we have those voices in our heads tempting us to do evil or urging us to do good. The battle continues within us and around us today. And that's what Christmas was originally about. That's why we're doing this series called Battleground Nativity. Now, here's what actually happened according to the Bible. Last week we talked about Mary going to visit Elizabeth. She was found out she's pregnant. She's 13 or 14 years old. Nobody believes her story. So she leaves town, runs away from home, a runaway teenage pregnant girl to be with Elizabeth, who may understand it. And Elizabeth encourages her. And Elizabeth mentors her. Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months, the Bible says, and then she returns to Nazareth to face the music. When she gets back to Nazareth, she and Joseph, who were on the outs, who were splitting up, they get on the same page. They get back together again. And, and, and then, of course, Joseph has to go to Bethlehem. But Luke 2 says there was a census, which means only Joseph would have to go back to Bethlehem, y'all. Only Joseph, only the male head of household was required to go and be counted. Women and children were not counted. At the census, the male head of household would just go and say, I've got this many people living in my home. And so the question then becomes, why, why would Mary, given those circumstances, leave her hometown? Why would she leave Nazareth, where she's from, where she's got family and friends presumably around her? Why would she leave with Joseph, this teenage boy she's engaged to? Why would she leave with Joseph, who would have no idea how to deliver that baby if the baby came while they were gone? Why not stay in Nazareth with people who might be able to midwife her or help her along the way? Why, with Mary being so young and so pregnant, probably by this point um, in her third trimester of pregnancy, why would she choose to walk 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem? 80 miles with Joseph. Given there's no donkey in the story, we presume that she walked 80 miles. That's like walking from here to College Station. Can you imagine walking from here to College Station in your third trimester of pregnancy? I mean, but don't even imagine 290. Imagine some impossibly dangerous, rough terrain, y'all. In fact, imagine 290. Go ahead and imagine 290, <laughs> and that's exactly what it would be like. Mary walks for 80 miles on 290, pregnant, and with Joseph. So why didn't she stay in Nazareth where the confines were friendlier unless there were no 
friendly confines of Nazareth for Mary. You all see what I'm saying? I think the fact that Mary leaves with Joseph is a great indicator to us that things were not okay in Nazareth for Mary. All she had was Joseph and God and this baby inside of her. And so she wasn't about to stay behind and be alone with these people that were ridiculing her and trying to get the truth out of her, you know, and and spreading rumors about her. There was no way she was going to stay. And so Mary left with Joseph because she was taking friendly fire from those closest to her. What I want you to know when you read the Bible, especially stories like this, is that anytime somebody says yes to God, they could have said no. Anytime somebody does something in the Bible, they're not robots. They have a choice in the matter. People say no to God all the time. I said no to him this morning. He's like, he's like, eat some fruit. And I'm like, no. You know what I'm saying? Like, I say no all the time. We all can say no to God all the time. Mary could have said no to any part of this story. Mary could have done something different. She goes with Joseph to Bethlehem. She could have stayed behind in Nazareth. She could have dug her heels in and said, I'm not going to be run out of my own town. I'm not going to let them sit here and talk about me that way. She could have been proud. She could have been stubborn. She could have stayed put fought that battle in front of her in her hometown, but that was not Mary's mission. Mary was on a different mission. God ordained and sent Mary on a different mission, and so she strapped on her walking shoes, and she did the the pregnant waddle for 80 miles with Joseph to Bethlehem because she had a different mission now. The Bible says this is what happened next. This is the only narrative in the Bible about the circumstances around Jesus's birth, the night he was born, okay? This is the only part. Matthew doesn't mention the exact circumstances of Jesus' birth. Mark doesn't mention Jesus' birth at all. John mentions it, but like uh, from a whole different weird kind of perspective, like you can read it for yourself, but like um, this is actually what happened according to the Bible. This is all it says, okay? Luke 2, 6 to 7. While they were there, while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Y'all check your Bibles. It does say guest room unless you're still reading the King James Version, in which case we got to talk. So (laughs) it will say, unless it was the original NIV version, some of your original NIVs from pre-1984 will still say in instead of guest room. I'll get to that in just a minute. But the first thing I want you to see is the first line in this passage, while they were there. It says, Joseph and Mary reported together to the census in Bethlehem. Then it says, while they were there. The time came for her to go into labor, for the baby to be born. So while they were there, what this means is Mary and Joseph had been there a while. There was no amniotic-soaked donkey, like, (laughs) riding into town, wondering why he's suddenly moist. You know, like, there was nothing (laughs) like that. There was just a trip to Bethlehem, and then while they were there, hanging out in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. So a whole different story, right? than what we've normally heard. The question then becomes, where were they staying that whole time while they were there? It makes absolutely no sense that Mary and Joseph would get a hotel room in Bethlehem anyway. First of all, I mentioned the size of the town earlier, but secondly, Joseph was from Bethlehem. He had only recently moved to Nazareth to follow a job up there. So he, he had a house in Bethlehem. If he didn't have his own house, his family had a home. In Bethlehem, that was Joseph's family's HQ. There's no way they would have gone looking for some hotel room. That that word, uh, that that word, 
that's been translated as in is a Greek word, kataluma. Kataluma is a very common word. The word kataluma does not mean in. It never has in any other literature. Even in the Gospel of Luke, the word kataluma appears again later in the same gospel, and it's translated as upper room. It happens when Jesus is serving the Last Supper. That word in that phrase is kataluma, and it's translated as upper room. And I'm going to explain what this means. This image that you're going to see here is a, a ruin of a first century Jewish home. And I want you to get a sense of how they built their home. So they would find a hole in the ground, basically. They were cave people, sort of. They, were, they, they would find these limestone caves, and they would build their house on top of the cave. And so the cave entrance that you see there is basically the stairwell down into the lower level of the house. They would build one or two levels above ground. So the levels above ground were where people did their living and sleeping and eating. Those were the places that were kept ritually, ceremonially, biblically clean, according to Old Testament law. The area down below was where they kept their animals when necessary. It's where they kept feed and things like that. And so down below was ritually, ceremonially unclean, right? And so when, when it says that the time came for the baby to be born and, uh, and, and there, there was no guest room for them, no cataluma for them. The answer to where did they stay is very clearly in Joseph's house, but either because other family had come into town and the house was packed, or because the house was just small, they had no room upstairs, no upper room, no cataluma for Mary to have her baby upstairs, and so Mary was forced down into the, um, into the, the lower area where the animals were kept, and that's where Jesus was born down below among the animals. So that, uh, that kind of explains some of the confusion, I hope, around uh, the inn versus the uh, guest room. And when they needed a place for Jesus to go to sleep, for the infant to finally, um, to finally rest, uh, Joseph emptied out a, a feeding trough. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, these feeding troughs are everywhere. They're very common. This is how animals were always fed. Joseph would just empty out the grain and lay the baby in the manger. It was an extremely confusing night for the sheep. But, um, but <laughs> presumably comfortable for the baby. Sheep still talk about it today, the night we almost killed the Savior. But the, <laughs> that's what people did. That was not that uncommon, right? Um, the next major event that happens in the life of, of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus it happens two years later. And this is recorded in Matthew's gospel, the second chapter of Matthew's gospel. And it starts this way. It says, when they had gone, and they are the wise men, the magi. We're going to talk about the magi and their visit next week. So we're jumping around a little bit. But when the magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Okay? So two years have passed. Mary and Joseph are just doing what new parents do. They're trying to adapt, trying to raise a baby, probably getting some help from Joseph's family and things like that. And they're raising Jesus in Bethlehem. King Herod, who was kind of the puppet king over that region, had heard about the birth of this new king from the wise men. We'll learn next week the circumstances there. But kings don't like competition generally. And so Herod was going to come and uh, he was going to send an army of men to come and kill Jesus in Bethlehem. There's this phrase in this passage that says, so Joseph got up, took the child, 
and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. It's one of those phrases you can kind of read and skip right over as if it's just what happened. That is one of the most loaded sentences in the whole New Testament, I think, where it says, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Extremely loaded sentence there. I mean, do you have any idea, any of you, do you have any idea how hard it is to leave the house with a two-year-old. You have any idea what went in to that sentence? You have any idea the kind of stress that went in to getting up in the middle of the night, getting awake, waking up a two-year-old who are known for being pleasant, especially while sleep-deprived? Have any idea the kind of stress? It's hard to leave the house with a two-year-old when you're going to the store. And they're going to Egypt. There's some of y'all that already have like a whole strategy board, like you're trying to catch a serial killer at home, like with all these different lists that you've made about Christmas travel a month from now, right? So you're like, where are we going to stay? And will it be safe? And how will we get there? How long will it take? And what will the kids eat? And what, what if one of the kids gets sick? Who will we see? Will we be okay? You know, we, we obsess over this stuff. That's what you do when you travel with kids. Joseph and Mary were about to travel with the most important toddler on earth internationally for the first time. Joseph and Mary woke up. He woke her up. He explained to her. She, without hesitation, gets up, and they together go and get Jesus out of his manger or his crib, wherever he was sleeping, and they grabbed the essentials that they needed, and they left home for Egypt. What I want you to see here again, that they did not have to go. Joseph did not have to lead his family out of Bethlehem. Joseph could have been the man. Joseph could have loaded his weapon and watched out the window all night and said, I'm not going to be moved from my house, dang it. And that would have been the manly thing to do. He could have been stubborn. He could have dug his heels in. He could have been the alpha and chosen to stay and fight for his hometown. But he ran. Joseph ran. Why? Because fighting Herod wasn't Joseph's mission. God was going to take care of Herod, and he did take care of Herod. Fighting Herod was not Joseph's mission. He could have stayed and fought Herod, but all Joseph needed to do, all he was ordained to do by God was take care of Jesus and his mama to keep them safe. And sometimes, Sometimes to win the war God's got you in, the only way to win is to retreat from the battle you've been fighting. The battle you're used to fighting, the battle you want to fight. Sometimes the only way to win is to retreat. In talking about this battle for the last couple of weeks through Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about the full armor of God found in Ephesians chapter 6. And we've always read this passage as though it's kind of silly or childish, kind of like uh, we kind of... I think categorize it as like the nursery rhyme stuff in the Bible, like we were raised in VBS, you know, wearing the armor. I want you to take it seriously because I think it's the way God equips you to, to fight and survive the spiritual battle you're in. So instead of reading it to you, I'm asking that you read it with me. If that's just not something you want to do, that's fine. You can just stay quiet while others are, are reading. We'll quietly judge you for not, but everybody else uh, can, uh, can read. Um, if, you'll, if you'll just uh, humor me and read along. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The real Christmas story is that God called two teenagers to change the world. God called Joseph and Mary to be enlisted in his army of light, eradicating darkness and evil through the life of Jesus. But the New Testament insists that it's not just Mary and Joseph who were called to deliver Jesus to the world. And it's not just Jesus' 12 disciples that he called to deliver his message to the world. Every single person who signs up for this thing, every single one of us that say, yes, I'm following Jesus, we become soldiers in that effort. We receive a mission from God to shine his light in dark places. Right? So you better not be the kind of Christian who just comes and consumes religion. If you do just that, then, then that's exactly what the enemy wants from you, to be a passive kind of Christian. Nobody else in your life knows you're a Christian because it doesn't really change anything else about your life. You just come and consume religion for one hour a week, and you feel a little better about yourself, and you go right back to the life you were living before. That is not discipleship. That's not what the New Testament is all about. You have been created with a high and holy calling for such a time as this in which you are living now. There is something you should be fighting for. But it takes you being conscious about it. It takes you having the reserves stored up and not wasting your reserves on needless, unessential, worthless battles. Right? So what, what the Bible says is that God gives us the spiritual armor to defend ourselves. He gives us the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And today's armor is shoes, which is kind of random, like shoes, the shoes of readiness. Why shoes? Because sometimes winning the war means knowing when to run, knowing what to run away from. You know, for 3,000 years, experts, generals, warriors have written books about war strategies. And I've had a lot of fun this week reading a lot, a lot of excerpts from those books and things like that. And they all include a chapter or a section about strategic retreat, about the importance of knowing what battles to pull away from and not getting ensnared or entangled in some needless, costly battles, expensive, both in life and limb and, and and artillery and things like that, expensive battles, just because you're too proud to walk away, just because you're too stubborn to admit momentary defeat and walk away, right? We're all wired this way. I want you to think, for example, about some historical instances like George Washington fighting in the, in the war, like weeks after the Declaration of, uh, of Independence was signed, George Washington is fighting the British Royal Navy, 
for Long Island of all places. But listen, if George Washington had said, I'm gonna dig my heels and I'm not losing this island, if he had said, I'm gonna be stubborn and proud and this is Merca and you know, like I'm gonna stay right here and I'm gonna defend this island from the British Navy, we would be having biscuits and tea this morning instead of coffee and donuts, which is just the worst. Like I can't even imagine what that life would be like. That would totally suck. Would it not like, that would be awful if George Washington hadn't in the moment conceded momentary defeat for the purpose of preserving eternal permanent victory in the war. Sometimes you have to learn when and how to walk away. We face the same choices all the time to keep fighting unnecessary skirmishes. Little battles we get obsessed over, costly battles, just because we're too proud or too stubborn or we don't choose our battles wisely. And man, there is nothing our enemy loves more than when we're distracted in these little skirmishes these little relationship, you know, battles or these little political, you know, arguments. And we get tangled up in those little petty things. And it becomes an incredible distraction from our God-given purpose. If he can keep us distracted, that's what he wants, our enemy. I think, for example, about single adults, and this is not all single adults. And singles in the room, I'm not just coming after you. It's going to be equal opportunity uh, offense today. Um, by the time we're done, I'm afraid. But uh, I, I do think about some single adults who have been called by God. They've responded to God's call to follow Jesus. They know God has enlisted them in this war to fight evil and sin and darkness and death. But then all they can think about is finding someone. And all they can think about is, is, is when am I going to meet someone or how am I going to meet someone or what are they going to be like? What should I be looking for? And, you know, God has enlisted them to fight in his war, but the only battle they think about is their own war on singleness that they're waging inside their own hearts. Sometimes we put something that's not the main thing at the center until we're distracted enough. It's not just singles. If anything, married people are worse. <laughs> married people, we're worse about this because how petty do we get? Man, marriage starts out as two people saying, no matter what, no matter what, I'll die for you. Like Kevin Costner in that movie, I'll die for you. And I'll take the bullet for you. And I've got your back. I'm your wingman. I'm your partner. If you come under heavy fire, I'll be the one to cover you. But what happens over time is crazy. It doesn't even take that much time for the enemy to distract us because his strategy in marriage, in your marriage, his strategy is divide and conquer. And if he can build up enough resentment in you to make you both forget that you were ever on the same team, that you ever promised to be partners for life, that you ever promised to cover each other and to have each other's back before anyone else's, if he can ever get you to forget that, and to start aiming friendly fire at each other, man, he's got you right where he wants you. And he's better at that than you are at marriage. He's an expert at divide and conquer. And there's too many marriages where it's more important for you that your wife knows you're right than it is that she knows you love her. It's too important. If that's the case in your marriage, you have become a pawn and a punk in the enemy's game. You have fallen for it. And parents, we do the same thing with our kids. We prioritize all the wrong battles sometimes, y'all. We, we obsess over things that are not mission critical. 
with our kids. We give them loud and clear the message that some things are more important, like what school they're getting into, what grades they're making, who they're socializing with, who they're dating, what their extracurriculars are, what their resume application thing looks like, what your family vacations look like. We fight tooth and nail in these side skirmishes. Meanwhile, we raise kids who don't even know how to pray. If it wasn't for just the routine of Sunday school or church or whatever, they would never pray. Because we have given them the message loud and clear that achievements and appearance are more important to us than their relationship with God. And so it should be more important to them too. When it comes to raising kids, you can win all those extra battles while losing the only war that matters. If you care more about your kids being successful than you care about them being faithful. In all of these battles, the only path to victory is retreat. And God gives you these spiritual shoes to walk away wisely and quickly, to run away from the skirmishes that don't matter, the skirmishes you've been distracted by. Jesus' brother James in chapter 4, verse 7 of his book says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist who? The devil. He's your enemy, not your spouse. Not mom and dad, not your kids, not Democrats or Republicans or people you disagree with. He says, surrender those small battles to God. Surrender it, even if it means saying you were wrong, even if you know you're right. Say you're wrong, surrender, back away, because it never mattered who won that fight. Because you can win that fight and lose the war. It happens every day when we fight the wrong battles because of our pride or our stubbornness or our fear. So I just want to ask you, and I'll sit down, well, I want to ask you very honestly what battles you've been fighting and facing that are not worth your time. What battles are taking up your resources and depleting you or your marriage or your relationships or your faith that aren't worth it? What skirmishes have distracted you that you need to run away from? I encourage you to follow Mary and Joseph's lead out of Nazareth, out of Bethlehem. Strap on your shoes of readiness and run away from the battles. The side skirmishes that distract you. Because God made you with a high purpose and he has ordained you with a holy calling. Doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a banker or a student or unemployed, God has ordained you with a holy calling to shine his light in dark places. So, guys, choose your battles wisely. Choose your battles wisely. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for equipping us and calling us. I pray for those that are on the fence of faith or doubt and uh, just not really sure what to make of who you are and what they're doing, I pray that you continue to nudge us toward faith and trust, toward this realization we've known all along that we're created for a reason and that we're not here by accident, that there is a struggle of light and darkness within us and around us, and we are called to pick a side. Help us to fight for good and light and glory for you ignoring the side skirmishes that distract us and embracing our high and holy calling. In Jesus' name, amen.